Welcome to the Park Road Talk Back Podcast. Today's podcast is a conversation with Russ Dean, co-pastor at Park Road Baptist Church with Amy Jacks Dean, about his recent book, Finding a New Way Home, The Unlikely Path of a Reluctant Baptist Renegade. I'm Bruce Holliday, Director of Communications at Park Road, and today Russ and I will be talking about Chapter 9 of his book entitled, A New Faith, Leaving the Blood In. Hello, Russ. How are you today? Bruce, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Very good. Thank yeah. you. So we, uh, we're getting close. We, we are continuing to work our way through your book, chapter by chapter, and today's chapter, the ninth one. Uh, the title of it, at least, kind of leaves me with some trepidation, to be honest, uh, you yeah. know, when I first saw the title. Can you tell us a little bit about the subject and the inspiration for this particular chapter of your book? Sure. You know, as we, we move through all of these chapters in, in the book sequentially, so this is the last one that happened. Um, it, it, it happened uh, within the first maybe five years or so that Amy and I were the pastors here at Park Road. Um, so, you know, about 15 years ago. So that to kind of put that in in time, the, the first of these experiences started when I was in college. And then, you know, 25 years later, um, I, I had this last experience. So that covers, you know, a, a, about a 25 or 30 year period there in my life. Um, and I was I was in uh, the meeting of the Alliance of Baptists, the, the one national meeting that we have each year. Uh, that year it was in Dayton, Ohio. Um, we had gotten a hotel room close to some friends and we had, after the, after the sessions for the Alliance, we had gone out to have dinner or something. We came back and we all had young children. So we'd put the kids to bed in the hotel room and we were sitting out in the hallway talking. And my friend, Dr. John Ballinger, who's now in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, John and I, who have an, we have an ongoing all the time conversation about something. Uh, John and I were sitting in the hall talking, um, and I, I, I make the comment in the in the book, uh, this chapter. Uh, Baptist ministers really know how to party. It's Friday night on uh, in Dayton, Ohio. We're sitting in the hallway talking about Baptist uh, hymns, um, uh, but something came up about. I don't remember whether this was related to the topic of the Alliance convocation that year or not. But somehow we were talking about the hymns that we had been raised singing. And a lot of those, um, you know, have mention of blood, the blood of Jesus. And, and so, um, you know, Baptist ministers sometimes kind of refer to those as the blood hymns. And uh, we're in churches now that don't really sing the blood hymns, but we were raised on them. And so we were talking about those and uh, the theology of atonement surrounding those uh, those blood hymns. And John made the comment, you know, if it were up to me, I would I would have to take out all those hymns. But somehow I'd have to find a way to leave the blood in. And uh, just, you know, the comment. Uh, stuck with me, stayed with me, um, and has been this last, this last uh, uh, comment in my journey here. And so we can talk more about that, but that's kind of right. where that comes from. Yeah. So before we get to the to the idea of why we would leave the blood in, can you tell me a little bit about the effect on you as a child? So you were you were raised in a, a Southern Baptist home. Um, the, the the effect of on you as a child of of the blood hymns of of, of atonement theology and and uh, I think you refer to it as a fear of God and an occasional emotional guilt. What was what was that like for you? Well, 
my my upbringing was very traditional Southern Baptist, and you know that's squarely located within the evangelical tradition um, that Jesus died for our sins. Um, and uh, I, I've said numerous times, my dad was not a hellfire and damnation kind of preacher, and he didn't pound the pulpit and you know scare hell out of you know everybody in his preaching, but very much at the heart of the theology on which I was raised, and this was true of my father's preaching and and really all the preaching that I heard through my high school years. You know, the the center of that is is the uh, atoning death of Jesus. You know, the, uh, so Jesus died for our sins um, in order to appease the holiness of God. And we have to accept, you know, we have to accept that sacrifice, you know, made on our behalf in order for our sins to be forgiven. And that's how you go to heaven. And so um, I, I was, I spent nine summers working at a Baptist boys camp. It was a summer boys camp. Um, and we did all the things that you do at Baptist boys camp, but each night there was a chapel service. Um, and you know, the Friday night service was a decision service and it all kind of built up to the, that time and giving boys a chance to make a, you know, make a decision for Christ and to give their life to Christ and a, a conversion experience. Um, and all of the preaching that I heard in, in those years um, was uh, re- revolved around this central act of Christian faith, which was the death of Christ for our sins. So I was, I was very, very much immersed in that kind of evangelical theology. Um, and it was, it was often emotional, uh, you know, this idea that, well, Jesus died for our sins and preachers would say, well, you know, he was thinking of you while he was hanging there on the cross and, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And um, while some of that I would understand now is very manipulative, um, emotional and manipulative, you know, those kinds of things were not uncommon to hear that Christ was thinking of us, that Christ died for us. And so there was a very emotional kind of sense to that. And yet also the other side of that was, well, why did Jesus have to die? Well, this was God's plan. And, you know, while we talked about the love of God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, that verse from John 3, 16, you know, that that idea that this comes out of God's love. There's also something that's pretty fearful about a God who, um, right. you know, yeah. requires the death of anyone for our sins. You know, it's a, a, a very... A, a, a very one-to-one transactional kind of you sin, somebody's got to pay for that. And that's a, that's a pretty wrathful notion of God. And so that's a very kind of paradoxical um, image of God that I was raised with this notion of the love of God and also the kind of fearfulness of the wrath of God who demands uh, death as payment for sins. Right. Well, I've said that on many of these podcasts that, you know, that was always confusing to me as a child. While this person who loves me so much would also be responsible for the death of of his son uh, on the cross. So that that was that is as a child for me, that was less scary and more confusing. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or theories on how the the death of Jesus uh, became this vehicle for so often creating shame and or guilt in Christians? Well, 
Um, you know, I, I was I was raised to believe this is this is what the death of Jesus means. And and you know, there are plenty of, of verses that you can, you know, pick here and there and kind of proof text and um that uh God sent his son to die, you know, that that kind of language is is certainly there. <clears throat> and I was raised to believe that you know, it's not one theology out of many. It it's what it says in the Bible. You know, I've come to understand that there are different theories of atonement um, and that over the centuries of, of, of uh, Christendom, um, theologians have talked about uh, the, the different ideas. This particular notion of penal substitutionary atonement, um, you know, there's got to be payment and Jesus becomes the substitute to pay. That theory really comes out of Anselm in the 12th century, um, mm. and and my understanding is that is that um, theology prior to that time was not nearly so bloody. Um, a, a, a book we read and studied a good many years ago said that in the early centuries of Christianity, the art does not depict blood nearly like it does after this th- these middle ages and and as this penal substitutionary theory became more prominent then the images got just more and more graphic and the blood just seemed to pour you know um right. and so this is something now, now we're still talking about a thousand years you know from anselm um, right. but but the second half of you know, the 2000 years of, of Christianity, um, whereas the first half, um, uh, according to the, the scholars that I've read, the first half was not was not what we have made it to be in, in uh, since Anselm. Another part of Christianity that you discuss in this chapter uh, is communion. And uh, you reference the biblical verse, John 635. Uh, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, uh, which is, you know, in reference to um, communion. Has, have your views on communion evolved over the years? I, I think very much. And ju- just with, with my overall views and understanding, um, Bruce, I I, I I do not subscribe to substitutionary atonement. And that's really what this chapter is about. This this idea that God is sort of a wrathful God who demands blood, um, you know, demands his pound of flesh, that old Shakespearean uh, notion there. Um, and it's either... It, Either I'm going to die to pay for that, or Jesus is going to die to pay for that. Um, and I prefer to talk and to understand um, what I call participatory atonement, that Jesus didn't die in order to um, in order to appease God for us. Um, you know, Jesus didn't die to save us from God. Jesus died, and his death teaches us who God is. God is love. And I say in the chapter, God is love and love that doesn't cost us anything probably isn't really love. Love is always costly, often sacrificial. And so the death of Jesus doesn't save us from God. It teaches us who God is. Um, And Jesus calls us over and over and over. um, If you want to be my disciples, 
take up your cross and follow me. He calls us to a life of self-giving. And that's, I'm not answering your question, but I'll get back to that with communion. But that's where leaving the blood in comes. You know, John said, I'd have to take out all those hymns, but find a way to leave the blood in. Um, Jesus calls us, um, hopefully not in a literal way, to have to give our lives literally to die, but Jesus calls us to a life of self-giving love for one another, denying self uh, for the sake of the other, sacrificing sometimes for the sake of the other. And so, I believe in what I call participatory atonement rather than substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't die to save us from God. Jesus dies to teach us who God actually is. Um, so so ask me your question again about communion, and let's get back to that. I was asking about your evolution on the views of communion. So as it's strictly understood by this verse in um, John 6.35, you know, you're eating the flesh of the son of the man and you're drinking his blood. So. Yeah, that's a, a, a very, it's a very harsh and troubling kind of verse as Jesus in the gospel of John, Jesus says these words to his disciples and, and it goes on to say many listened to him and these were hard words and they turned and they could not follow that. Um, and so this notion of, of communion sort of as cannibalism, as eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is one that um, um, has has caused a lot of people. A lot of people, a lot of Christians trouble over the years. My understanding as a Protestant, you know, Roman Catholics uh, uh, have a doctrine called transubstantiation, that somehow in the mystery and the miracle of the priest words around communion, when, when the priest says, this is my body broken for you, then literally the, the, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. And they go to great details to talk about you're not literally drinking, you know, the corpuscles of Jesus' blood, but, but literally in some kind of mystical way, this becomes body and blood. They're taking very literally these words from the Gospel of John. Um, that's the theory of trend uh, of transubstantiation, literally the, the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood. Baptist Protestants don't, don't uh, subscribe to that, um, that we are doing communion as a symbol, a symbol of the death of Christ. And we remember when he was with his, his disciples and he gave them that uh, meal, that last supper, um, and what they remembered was him saying, this is my body. This is the, the, the cup of uh, a new covenant in my blood. It was a, a, a memorial of his death. Um, and so I, I have, I have ev- evolved in my understanding from more of a literal kind of understanding to a symbolic understanding and the symbolism of communion. Again, I would understand that in terms of participatory atonement. And if we can take communion and it call us to a remembrance of the commitment that Christ had to the conviction of his life and to his calling that I, too, am supposed to live a life that is sacrificial and self-giving, then the symbolism of communion can be powerful. We talk about these blood hymns. We talk about some of the issues around the, the idea of communion. And, and in this chapter, you say that 21st century Christians need to hear and understand their critiques that will come 
from those um, those those aspects of Christianity, and that Christianity uh, needs to be accessible and meaningful. I'm wondering, how do you answer critics who say it is not up to Christianity to make itself accessible, that people instead need to hear and accept what is said in the Bible or from the pulpit or from the highest levels of church hierarchy? I I love the church. I appreciate the church. I want the church to thrive. I think it still can speak to 21st century Christians. Um, but I don't think we're doing a very good job if all of our language is... Um, comes across as outmoded. Um, and um, so I, I think we have to, I think we have to make Christianity accessible in a 21st century world. Um, everything, everything is updated. Um, and, and Christianity has done this over 2000 years. Um, you know, the message today is not the message that was preached 1500 years ago or a thousand years ago. We're adjusting, always adjusting to our contemporary setting. Um, and, and the church has always done that. And I just think, um, to not do so, um, the, the church will be left behind. Um, and I, I think people people in the church have got to be willing to, to hear the critique of those who listen. And, you know, your own experience, Bruce, from a child, this, this didn't make any sense to me. This, right. you know, this sounded like a bloodthirsty God. And, you know, um, we, we've got to be able to hear that critique and be able to say to people, um, let, let's think, of, let's think of, other ways that we can understand this, you know. Well, um, yeah, to that end, let's let's wrap this up with an explanation of how we can, quote unquote, leave the blood in and still not leave some people feeling kind of on the outside because they, they, they find blood hymns or communion or other aspects of Christianity troubling. What What is it when you say leave the blood in? How do you, how do you think that manifests itself in uh, Christianity now? Well, as, as I've just said, um, I, I believe in participatory atonement. And I, I quote in here um, a, a theologian named Donald Bailey who says, there is an atonement in the heart of God um, that, that God is sacrificial love. And if we are going to understand God, we have to also be loving, self-giving. Um, if I live a life that is completely selfish and is completely about me, um, I, I am not appropriating the love of God, the nature of God into my own life. And so leaving the blood in um, means finding a way for me to practice the sacrificial love that I think is demonstrated in uh, in in Jesus and the death on the cross. Um, so again, it, it, it to me is is about adopting a lifestyle that is not about myself, but is about the other. It is it is learning how to live in in moments small and large that are sacrificial, that are self giving, that are thinking of the other rather than myself. Um, that's what I mean by leaving the blood in. Right. So when you say sacrificial, do do I literally need to die at some point? for someone else, or do I need to, to give away all my money, or uh, what is the sacrifice, or what is, what, 
is there an acceptable level of sacrifice that, yeah. that would make this work? I, I certainly hope we don't have to literally die. I, I personally am hoping not to have to literally die for the gospel. You know, that's, that's right. not my that's not my goal. Um, and, and I think everybody has to um, everybody has to make their own decisions about how much giving is sacrificial. And you know, if you're giving off the top, well, you know, we we've got some very rich people in the world that give a lot of money. Um, but you couldn't really call that sacrificial. You know, if they're giving exactly. out of, you know, the interest that they're making it, ne they're never really giving even any of the principal. That's not sacrificial. Uh, but again, I I'm not here to judge you as to whether you're giving enough, doing enough. Um, but I think that is the calling of Christ. It is the challenge of the gospel to live in a way that is costly. Um, I will have to make that decision for me. Um, Am I living? And, and you know, there are plenty of people, Bruce, that will look at my life and look at where I live in South Charlotte and, you know, the things I do and how I spend my time. And they would say, there's no sacrificial living in your life. You know, that, so we're, we're all open to critique about that. Um, right. And, but, and also that that whole concept seems uh, almost anathema to uh, the, the American way of life in, in many ways. I mean, it, it seems... You know, and I'm, I'm making some gross characterizations here, but, you know, so much of American life seems about acquisition and growing assets and, and just obtaining wealth and power. And, and this, this message that you're, you're describing here seems to be quite contrary to that. I have been criticized by a few of our own church members, Bruce, from time to time for being anti-American and anti-capitalist and, um, you know, socialist and all sorts of things. I, I, and and I'm, I am none of those things. I'm not anti-American and I'm not anti-capitalist and I'm not a socialist. I do think that the message of Christ, that a message that calls us to sacrificial living, um, is a message that cuts across the American uh, mythology pretty strongly. And, and you just named that, you know, acquisition is it's about me and, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins and all those kinds of things. There is a lot about the American mythology, the American narrative that run pretty counter to the, to the message that Jesus sent. And so, um, while I don't ever appreciate being um, skewered for sermons, I think, well, maybe I'm actually preaching the right message. If that's what you're <laughs> hearing, it there there is a there is a countercultural aspect to right. this whole notion. Um, well, Russ, that's a, another. Was there something else you wanted to say? Yeah, I, I wanted one yeah. other thing. This Alliance of Baptists. I, this chapter started with a meeting of the Alliance of Baptists. I'm writing a, a chapter for a book that the Alliance is doing now on atonement theology. Last year's uh, national meeting, they were going to have a one-day um, uh, discussion of atonement theology. And I wanted to say that, Bruce, because I wanted to say I'm not the only one wrestling with this notion. Um, and uh, there are evangelicals now uh, um, who are not part of the Alliance of Baptists. There are evangelical scholars and pastors and teachers who are questioning this notion of how bloody 
um, our theology has been, and what are the implications of that? You know, this this notion of redemptive violence, if God demands the blood of Jesus, then you can go pretty far down the road to justifying mm-hmm. all sorts of um, violence. Um, and if, well, if we're on God's side, then, you know, God demands, sometimes God demands blood. And so there's some pretty troubling um, outworkings to this theology. And there are a lot of folks across across Christianity who are dealing with this. The Alliance of Baptists um, was doing a one-day uh, study for pastors and church folks who come, uh, and they're, they were not able to do that because of the pandemic. But they're producing a uh, a book, and I'm writing one chapter on that, and the chapter is related to um, a participation in communion that we have done. I found uh, um, it's it's a document from the first century called the Didache, which means the teaching, and this was a, a sort of a catechism for an for one part of the early church in the first century, and the very specific instruction for communion says nothing about the blood or the body, the broken body of Christ. It invites the church together to a meal that is communion, and it is an in-gathering of the people of God and a call to unity. There is no bloody atonement theology whatsoever in this first century document. Uh, This goes to my point that the blood hasn't always been the primary means of understanding. And so when I discovered that um, that document, I talked to Amy and we decided that we would offer communion one Sunday morning at Park Road and we would tell the church about this. And, and, and uh, so we invited them to the practice of communion uh, with this early church from the first century, and that uh, so we set we set up our communion differently. We didn't read the traditional words. We didn't talk about body and blood. We didn't play the usual kind of somber music. We invited people to sit and talk and laugh together, and we gave them some you know what's your favorite meal and what's your favorite menu. And um, the response, Bruce, from our congregation was just amazing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of folks in this congregation who struggle with this kind of language that we've talked about, the bloody language, and finding a way to appropriate um, the death of Christ, the life of Christ um, in this um, communion experience that, that did not harken back to a kind of atonement theology was really life-giving to them. And so this chapter in this uh, this book of the, the Alliance is publishing, I'm writing about this experience um, of, of communion. Um, and so that's been important to me to realize that, that even going way back to the first century, there were Christians who, who looked at the life of Jesus and didn't emphasize the the bloody substitutionary death of Jesus. Um, and so we are we are not doing things as lone rangers here when we talk about trying to understand the the death of Jesus um, without uh, a, a look at all the blood. Um, it, it, it puts us it puts us in a tradition that goes way that goes way back. So in your role as a scholar, you you studied this and you you looked at um, original text and and all the the um, the related history and literature of the time. Do you ever feel like you're trying to, or that we should work our way back to the original form of Christianity? Is there is there a different, and I'll use the word more original form of Christianity 
than something we practice today? And, and if so, is that something that you would like to see us work towards? You know, that, that's a really interesting question. There's a book by uh, a, a re religion professor at UNC Chapel Hill, Bart Ehrman, called Early Christianities. And what he says in his book is that there was no original Christianity. Right. From the very beginning, there have been questions and different aspects of communities have dealt with those theologies in different ways. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Was Jesus divine? Did Jesus rise from the dead? All of those questions were answered in lots of different ways across the spectrum um, of Christianity. So I don't know that there is an original Christianity, except that I would say we ought to go back to Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It is a way, it is a way of, of practicing dying, quote unquote, in our living. Um, and so a remembrance of, of the death of Jesus as a way for us to live our lives means a selfless way of living, a way that that is always willing to sacrifice our good for the other. So, you know, if I had to go back to an original Christianity, I would go back to Christ, you know, that that calling to, to take up our cross and follow. That's a pretty good source, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate all that you do, you know, the honesty that you've you've shared uh, in all these chapters and uh, the, the different topics that you present for further consideration and, and more thought. Uh, it's all been extremely helpful uh, to me and I'm sure many people who are reading your book. Well, thanks, Bruce. I, I'm, I'm trying to put together a, I may have mentioned this, I'm putting together a retreat that I would love to do and offer people an opportunity to dialogue some more about this. And anybody who wants to talk individually or with your church group or a small group of any kind, I'm, I'm always interested in the conversation. So let me know and we'll talk more. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Russ. Always a great conversation. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about obtaining a copy of Russ's book, Finding a New Way Home, you can obtain that information at the Park Road website, parkroadbaptist.org, under the Resources tab. We invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family. They can always find it on the Park Road website, or you can listen and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. That's it for this week. From all of us at Park Road Baptist Church, thank you for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.